Welcome to Movable Dough. This is Steve Danielson. Join me as I interview and promote living composers. In this series of interviews, I talk with composers about their musical journeys, their past successes and setbacks, and their current projects. For more information about this podcast, as well as a complete archive of episodes, please visit sdcompose.com slash movable dough. Hey, this is Steve. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Movable Dough. My guest today is Maria Isabel Valverde. Mari is an award-winning composer and singer currently based in North Texas. In 2017, she won the Boston Choral Ensemble's Commission Competition. Her piece, Our Phoenix, was premiered in 2016 by a collective ensemble at the Gay and Lesbian Association of Choruses Festival. She holds degrees from St. Olaf, the San, San Francisco Conservatory of Music, and the European American Musical Alliance in Paris, France. She currently teaches singing and transgender voice training with True Voice Lessons. Maria Isabel Valverde, thank you for joining me today on Movable Dough. Thank you for having me. So I'd like to start today with your love of languages. So I read that you're fluent in Spanish and French and that you're actively studying Brazilian Portuguese and Swedish. So I'm fascinated by languages and would like to know what is driving you toward this language learning. Is it necessity, recreational? I mean, what what is it? Oh, well, I think uh, language is so uh, connected to music and how I experienced music and how I learned music from off the bat. Um, I'm a choir nerd, just like so many of us are. And in Texas, um, they have region choirs and all state choirs. And there's a lot of competition in Texas. Mm -hmm. That's a big part of our culture for better or worse. Um, but part of that was very academic and we had to sing, um, as you would imagine, you know, Bach, Brahms, but also occasionally songs in French and Italian and, and then we had to audition with them. And so, so I guess my curiosity for music, uh, I mean, for language came as early as my interest in music has. Uh -huh. Um, so I kind of, uh, I'm, I'm a singer and part of the reason that I wanted to be a composer was because of the vocal music that I learned in those formative years yeah. and I was fascinated by. And, um, you know, I'm a Mexican-American. My parents uh, really prioritized me learning Spanish. I wasn't allowed to take French, even though that's really what I wanted to take. So it's really just kind of something that you know, just like songs, music is a language itself. It opens up your imagination. And um, I think that when people do the work of learning music and internalizing music in the same way as they would with a language that they learn how to express themselves in deeper and in a variety of ways. I find it fascinating. I'm just a nerd and <laughs> There's, I'm insatiable when it comes to my curiosity for this. I am right on board with you on that. I love studying languages. In fact, I'm studying Swedish and Spanish myself right now. So, <laughs> Well, we can be little partners. That's right. That's right. So um, as I mentioned in your bio, you teach singing and training for transgender voices. Uh, could you describe some of the challenges faced by transgender voices that people may not consider? Are you, are you talking about day-to-day -day living and surviving or are you talking about like pedagogy things yes <laughs> uh, 
You know, what, well, what is it that you, that you face while teaching transgender voices that people may not realize that you have to face or that they have to face while oh they're Lord. training? We could do the whole podcast on this. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, I guess I'll go with the pedagogy perspective first because um, that's the easier question. That's mm -hmm. the easier one to answer. Yeah. Um, so choir in general, which is, you know, my, my outlet into singing from the beginning was choir, but choir specifically is a very gendered uh, practice or, or context environment, that's a better word. Um, and I think that people generally, and this isn't, you know, just trans people or just cis people, it's everybody um, have, perceived or understood ideas uh, and roles about one gender or another gender and they have internalized it and it it comes you know this there's so much of things that you probably don't think very deeply about um, that are gendered for example um, how the word tenor carries the connotation of maleness mm -hmm. and how the, the term countertenor also has a connotation of maleness. And uh, soprano can either be uh, prepubescent or uh, can be associated with femaleness. So these are, you know, kind of embedded in our language. And I mean, just for, from that, just the, the language that we use to describe voice classifications and in fact identity because young people in choir class you know if you tell them they're an alto they get alto alto power alto pride right and it becomes a part of the identity and that essentializing is so counterproductive to our development not only as singers, but as uh, also as human beings. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, I'm all about alto pride, like very, <laughs> very much about that. Um, however, it's, there's no need, there's an undue pressure from within ourselves to, to uh, define ourselves on those things, you know? And, and what it really is, is underneath it all is this, wanting for belonging, you know? Yeah. You join an ensemble, you, you participate in the ensemble, you learn and you become a group of human beings with those people. And that belonging isn't contingent on you doubling down on identifying one way or another. Mm -hmm. But that is all to say that like, the voice is gendered, how we talk about the voice is gendered, um, the music that we select and the music that we sing carries messages of binary gender or they ch you know challenge ideas of binary gender um yeah so I, this you know things like housing on tours and and uh how people take a role in their choir class and pronouns and all of those things like so many things are gendered and unless you are transgender you might not be super sensitive to it if you are transgender, 
then or non-binary then you have the experience of um, not seeing yourself reflected in any of the options that are viable or like offered to you uh-huh. you, know, you can be a tenor bass or you can be a soprano alto you can be an m or an f you can wear a dress or a suit and a tie or cummerbund for some people the, the, the binary nature of things and just how embedded it is into our music literature, into our pedagogy, and into how we interact with each other is something that really sets off your radar if you're a trans person yeah. and really prevents you from participating fully in your immediate environment. And that's not good. That's not good for trans people, but it's also not good for people that we work with because people that we work with might benefit enormously from the experience that we can, we can talk about. Um, so let's, let's go back to the beginning of your musical training. Uh, you, you said you started out in choir, like what, what age did you start singing? Uh, it was like sixth or seventh grade, sixth grade. I want to say sixth grade. I always, this is a little foggy to me because <laughs> I know I auditioned either in fifth or sixth grade. And I say, I sang in an elementary honor choir in sixth grade. So I'll just say sixth grade. Okay. So I was probably about 12. And then, so I have an older brother and he's really the reason that I did music in the first place. I um, basically followed into on his footsteps um, until I just couldn't anymore. <laughs> but um you know, I didn't, this is, this is a very integral to, you know, talking about my experience as a trans person, because, um, well, it's hard to remember things because I've kind of let go of some memories that really misrepresent me hmm. until you come out. People don't really experience you. They mm -hmm. experience an idea of you that is a result of people projecting ideas of who you're supposed to be on you. Yeah, so I followed my brother's footsteps and ended up doing choir. And whenever I got to seventh grade, he auditioned for the Allstate Choir because he was two or three years older. Mm -hmm. Two years in school, three years actually. Uh, he basically told me, he says, you need to learn how to sight read. And I was like, I don't want to, but he <laughs> taught me how to sight read music. And we would, um, you know, it would be like a game. Like we would set read duets, like sight singing in the back of the car, um, you know, while my mom was shopping or whatever. Yeah. Um, <laughs> wow, Texas is intense. Yeah, we, yeah, we started sight reading. And, I, and then I started like doodling around. And then I brought, when I was in eighth grade, I brought my first compositions to my choir director. And she played them on piano because I couldn't. And those pieces that I wrote are probably, I don't know. I don't know where they are, but nobody needs to know. <laughs> um, yeah, so, you know, I, I go to school eventually, St. Olaf. I knew I wanted to be a composer because, you know, as a young person, I loved choir, but I didn't want to be a performer like my brother was because I didn't want to be seen because I felt misrepresented anytime I was seen. Uh -huh. um, and so I could compose as I, well, I, I attempted to all the way from eighth grade. 
And then in 10th grade, uh, my parents got me this massive gift of a piano. And I, I started to teach myself piano a little bit. Um, and then I got to St. Olaf. I knew I wanted to do composition because it was something that I could, I could still participate in music without having to be seen. Mm-hmm. I like to tell that story. It's all jumbled, but <laughs> this is the story I'm trying to tell. Um, I, I didn't, I wasn't one of those people that like, you know, had piano lessons or harp lessons or clarinet lessons from like, you know, infancy. (laughs) (laughs) I was just another choir nerd and found solace in composing music and um, decided that I was crazy enough to make a career out of it. So thinking back on your early compositions, you know, what is something that you struggled with in your writing then that you have conquered or you find easier now? Uh, <laughs> that's a good question. I, I have to think about that because honestly, composing now is hard. I feel like I have more tools with two degrees mm-hmm. and I have more like credibility and confidence. But at the same time, it's still very difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't know how to do a Rubik's cube, but I feel like I'm trying to figure out Rubik's cube when I'm writing music, which I'm sure is very relatable. Yeah. Um, or like, you know, I'm inventing a jigsaw puzzle and I'm, I'm looking for pieces and I don't know where they are and it takes me days to find the right pieces sometimes. <laughs> It's not fun. I mean, <laughs> it's not. <laughs> but when it's all done and it's like printed out and looking all bougie, like that's the best feeling in the world. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can solve a Rubik's Cube and I can tell you it, it is similar when you finally get that last cube in place. It has that euphoric feeling like, oh, I've done it. It's, it, it's out there now. <laughs> yes. So much of your music, especially your vocal and choral music, uh, deal with issues of gender identity, uh, immigration, and nature. So I know that these are issues that are particularly important to you. So when you work with choirs or other ensembles that are performing your work, how do you help them feel the importance of what you wanted to say? That's, uh, I love how you said nature at the end of that. (laughs) Because it's true. Like these are, those are themes that I, that I portray and talk about a lot. Um, The nature stuff comes from, I would say before uh, 2016, when I started getting, like most of my commissions came from like 2015 to now. Okay. Um, That was kind of a turning point in my career because I had outed myself as trans at an ACDA convention and got a lot of, attention and interest from that and one thing led to another and like now I'm a commissioned composer which is you know a worthy conversation but my point is that I write about those political topics because um or social justice topics politically charged I like saying that (laughs) um because that's the music that people are hiring me to write right it's not just that oh, I love doing this. Like, um, it, I mean, I love learning about Black history. I love learning about 
uh, American LGBTQ history. I love learning about how we got where we are today, which is a whole other conversation, but I have learned to care about those things. And those were not things that were readily taught to me in my two degrees. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I think everybody could stand to learn from having some curiosity about our history as a country, regardless of like, you know, with, without any like judgment, you know? Yeah. And, um, yeah, I, th- I think it's so important. Uh, and I feel like that's something that I'm learning along the way. Um, in, in terms of like nature, <laughs> um, that's, I guess, what had inspired me. Living in Fort Worth is so uninspiring. It's very concrete jungle, very flat. Um, the only thing that really is, makes living here worthy is affordability, the people and the airport is nearby. So you can no, on normal occasions, get out. Right. <laughs> but um, yeah, I love nature. I say that because it's ironic because I grew up here and I've lived most of my life here and I don't like it. If you could go anywhere and experience nature there, where would you go? Oh my goodness. There's so many places that I go. <laughs> like if I could marry a man that like, could be one of those like people that survived the apocalypse because I would not survive the apocalypse. (laughs) I am not suited for that. But if I could have a partner that could like survive the apocalypse, I would choose like, you know, like the tundra or like Yukon territory, Canada or something. Wow. Yeah. I like cold. I like the cold. I like beautiful nature. I like fresh air and I like you know, when people are a little keep to themselves and a little depressed. That's why I like the Pacific Northwest. <laughs> <laughs> well, come visit. That's where, that's where I am. So. <laughs> um, so we've been in this pandemic for quite some time now, going on a year. <laughs> so what has been the hardest thing for you during this pandemic? And conversely, what has been the best thing for you during this pandemic? Oh, that's you come with the question. <laughs> I I have not thought about this. The worst thing. Oh, I miss traveling a lot. Um, okay, I'm gonna try not to cry. I I miss uh, singing and being with people and working with people. And um, yeah, that's that's hard because I'm very employed. Uh, I have a lot of music to compose. I'm still catching up on some of that. And I'm grateful for that. And I'm grateful for the connections I have, but not being able to be with people and like feel their voices carried on the air on my skin, mm-hmm. you know, and to like have like eye contact viscerally, like. I crave that so much. Um, And I think that somebody asked me earlier, have you been prolific as a composer during the, during the uh, pandemic or have you been one of those composers that has hardly done anything because of a lack of inspiration? And I definitely towards the lean towards the latter. Mm -hmm. Um, So 
yeah, it's, um, I'm ready for people to be vaccinated and, you know, for the right adjustments to be made so that we can come together and make music together again. That's the hardest part. The best part, what is the best part? The best part, frankly, is all the politics, <laughs> which is, you know, maybe that sounds uh, ironic, but I see, I see everything that's happened in our country really since George Floyd, but those things have been building up for a long time. Um, and George Floyd is just one of many cases that just caught the attention of a lot of people and the curiosity of a lot of people for better or worse, right? We're having conversations now that um, it goes like this. <clears throat> I'm a trans woman and I live in Texas and I want to connect with other human beings. In order for me to connect with a man in my case, 99% of the time it's a straight man, I have to have a difficult conversation with my partners. Mm -hmm. I have to vet all of my partners to make sure I'm going to be safe with them. Um, I'm using this as an analogy, but human connection requires difficult conversations. And all of, all of the, the debates and all of the uh, disagreements and the hostility, it's like people are not connected. It's so obvious that, that lack, there's a lack of human connection. Mm -hmm. so I'm very, very like intent about having those conversations. Mm -hmm. um, even if they may be politically charged or people think they're private conversations, it's the stories. I think about when I was uh, doing, what, what do they call it, canvassing? So to be very like transparent, I was a, a volunteer for the Bernie Sanders campaign. And part of what we did was knock on doors and mm -hmm. basically try to gauge people's interest in him as a candidate. And they specifically told us during the training, do not sit there and debate with people. If they ask you why you like that candidate so much, then you share your personal stories because personal stories have, when they're shared and when they're received, that's what, pe that's what makes people change their mind. That's what, pe that's what people believe and start, that's when people start to think about things. Personal stories, you know, it's, yeah. not, it's really not anything else. You have to appeal to their emotions. They said, if you sit there and argue with somebody or try to win them over, that this, the psychology or the, the studies, the statistically, what that does is it, it causes them to be defensive and causes them to double and triple down on whatever ideology they have. Mm -hmm. Which a lot of times, whatever ideology people have is fear-driven. Yeah. People, people like, oh, I don't want to talk about politics, but I think it's, I mean, doing that really helped me to understand why people are so guarded and defensive and, uh, and whatnot. And bringing it back to my music, these politically charged pieces, whenever they are performed, whether I'm in the room or not, I've clinicked choirs on my music before, they beg the singers 
which, you know, can be anywhere from 15 people in a room to like 300 people in a room at a festival to know what they're singing about and to internalize that and then to share that with the rest of the world. Yeah. And I have been very fortunate to collaborate with the poets that I have. And I have learned a lot along the, along the way. And I use my music as a, a means by which to help people educate themselves and to imagine a better world for everybody. All right. Well, speaking of which, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll actually investigate some of Mari's compositions. Welcome back. I'm talking today with Mari Isabel Valverde. So let's begin today by talking about Cantares for SSA Acapella Choir with Spanish text by Federico Garcia Lorca. So I'd like to read the English translation that you made of the poem, if I may. The afternoon says, I thirst for shadow. The moon says, I thirst for starshine. The crystal clear spring demands lips and the wind sighs. I thirst for fragrances and laughter, thirst for new-made songs without moons and lilies and dead loves. A morning song which stirs the still oasis of prospects and which fills their silt and waves with hope. A luminous song laid to rest, full of thought, naive of sadness and anguish and fantasy. A song stripped of lyric which fills the silence with laughter, a flock of blind doves thrown into mystery. A song which goes to the soul of things and to the soul of the winds and which ultimately rests in joy from the eternal heart. So what does this mean to you and what were you trying to say with it in this composition? Oh, so this was my first commission. I didn't even select the text. My friend Joseph Kemper, who is currently a doctoral candidate at uh, University of Michigan, um, chose this text for me. I went to see Nola for him, so he knows me. He, I think this was his first suggestion. I had to uh, do some research to, to get the permissions from the, the heirs of uh, Federico Garcia Lorca. And that's a little bit of an awkward situation because uh, the, the gentleman I was working with like passed. So I don't know exactly what I'm gonna do with that. Just putting that out to the universe because I do want to resolve that. It's called, so I, the word cantares um, really just means songs, mm -hmm. um, but uh, actually the, I give it the English title of new songs because to me, this is just like, it's joy with momentum. It's not just a moment of joy. Like the, when you read the whole poem, it just like, it's joy from start to finish. And it's, um, it talks about like the, the dead loves and, you know, just like not letting guilt or shame stick to you and, and uh, insisting on feeling pleasure and feeling alive and, and, um, and moving forward. And so, um, I mean, that's what I got from when you read the, the translation. I um, translated that and that's more of like a, a word for word or like mm -hmm. literal translation, not an idiomatic one. Um, so I didn't try to like interpret 
like the meaning so much yeah. as just to grab the words, but it translates pretty well. And it's got a lot of imagery, which I love. Um, and certainly at the beginning of my career was very appealing to me in text selection, but the Spanish, this just Spanish, just, it's like putting on a different outfit, you know, mm -hmm. it just kind of allows you to, to live in a different persona. And I mean, that's, that was pretty much a little translation of the Spanish, but when you, when you say it in Spanish, when, when you actually sing the words, it has, um, it's so colorful and I love it. Like, I, I just got a kick out of like, just you reading it. <laughs> so, you know, that's, that's really effective literature. Yeah, well, let's go ahead and take a moment and we'll listen to Cantares. Next, let's move to Crossing for TTBB Chorus and Piano. So this was commissioned by the Seattle Men's Chorus. 
You mentioned to me earlier in an email that conducting the Seattle men's course was one of the highlights of your career. So can you tell me about that experience and writing this piece for them? Oh my goodness. <laughs> it was, it was such, it was such a like, you know, pinnacle moment. I felt like a Disney princess, you know, <laughs> I, um, so I, I, I was asked to compose the piece and whenever I got there uh, for the rehearsal, uh, Paul Caldwell, their artistic director, got on his knee in front of the choir, in front of me, and asked me to conduct the piece in their concert, uh, which was uh, a coming out of the closet themed concert. It was called Born This Way. Mm -hmm. And I was shook because I don't really conduct. <laughs> um, I'm not, I mean, you could ask Dr. Armstrong, like I, I tried as best as I could as a college student, um, but that's not my gig. <clears throat> so, you know, they were paying me. So I felt like I had to say yes. And it was in front of like, I don't know, how big is their group? Like 200, 300 men. <sighs> yeah, so I did. I memorized how to conduct it. And then I, I conducted them at the Opera House there in Seattle. If anybody in the Seattle Men's Chorus is out there listening to it, it's just like, I love them so much. And I thank them for, tr for trusting me and uh, allowing me to, to share a piece of my story and that I have enjoyed being a part of their stories as well. I should say the Seattle Men's Chorus has uh, both, I believe, both trans women and trans men singing in that group. And so it's a very loving environment. Mm -hmm. And like, I'm so grateful to them. So crossing is a, kind of an analogy about coming out of the closet. Um, the, the, the poem has the image of a bridge and it's like really rickety and unsure. And um, the analogy is if you can manage to cross that bridge, that there is love and acceptance on the other side. And I'll say self-acceptance on the other side, but the process of coming out is so vulnerable. And some people don't make it, they either, don't cross the bridge or they might die trying. And the middle section of this piece, Crossing, um, it goes into a parallel minor and it's really chromatic. And uh, there's some jagged parts in the words like tremble. And that's the part where it's basically unsure. You don't know what to expect. You don't know how people are going to react when you let them into your reality and let them into your, your soul, your heart. And that's to me what coming out of the closet is. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, some people don't make it. It's a, that piece is about overcoming that, but it's also just allowing ourselves to feel how vulnerable that is, how scary it is and how real it is because I, I don't think that people are always willing to swallow that pill, um, but with the music, it helps 
helps the reality goes down. <laughs> sure. Sure. All right. Well, let's take some time here and we will listen to Crossing.
All right, we'll go next to Borderlines for SATB Chorus and Guitar. So I loved the imagery of this piece as you set the beginning of the piece in just treble voices followed by bass voices recalling lines on a map which remind the poet of memories. Uh, and then as you get to the line, I wish maps would be without borders and we belong to no one and to everyone at once. What a world that would be. The singers actually come together as a unified body. So what themes were you approaching in this piece? That was so good. You interpreted things I didn't realize about my own music. Um, <laughs> I love it. There's also a solo in there. And um, I, I hope that I can recall the words, which I may not at this time. If you have the score in front of you, you could probably find it. I don't. I'm sorry. <laughs> and if uh, it's like, if, and if the people you came from disappeared tomorrow, I would weep with you. Um, that's not the perfect quote, but that's the I idea. Mm. And I, I think that it's so beautiful that the poet chose the, the people I come from, that you came from. If they had disappeared, I would weep with you. And in and, and that section I have, first the sopranos, I would weep with you, and it falls to the altos, I would weep with you, and then the tenors, and then the basses. And so it's this collective willingness, again, to uh, participate in some radical vulnerability. Yeah, so th this is basically isolation because like you said, the, the parts are, uh, you know, one part at a time and then uh, homophonic other times. Yeah. But it's that idea of, of separation and isolation. Um, and it's, a, I mean, it's a little sparse. The whole thing, it's five minutes long and it's a little sparse melodically. Mm -hmm. But um, I, I didn't plan for it to be that way. I guess I did, but I didn't, I didn't really connect to how um, that was consistent with the idea of isolation and separation. Yeah. Just, uh, I put in my program notes that geopolitical borders are, are arbitrary lines, you know? It, certainly for people being separated from their families, for what reason? or another, like you can't draw arbitrary lines between people's relationships. Yeah. You can't draw an arbitrary line between a mother and a child or between lovers. That's not, that is not a clean cut. Right. You end up like the poem says, you end up crushing somebody who is not expected to die by thirst. Um, yeah. No, I, I totally understand that that concept. I spent some time in the Czech Republic and Slovakia and, you know, new people that, you know, grew up when it was Czechoslovakia and had families now that were separated in two countries divided by a geopolitical line. Um, and it, it takes more than that to, to separate families. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, let's take some time here and we'll listen to Borderlines. Oh, uh -huh. 
All right, we will end today by talking about your Oracle of Spring. This lively song for SATB Acapella Chorus is relatively short, only about two and a half minutes, but is full of delightful wordplay and imagery of the cuckoo bird. Since I know many of your pieces deal with issues deeper than what might be on the surface, I wonder if you are viewing the spring and the cuckoo courtship as symbolic of something else. You know, it's a Goethe, so it probably is. <laughs> But I, I will tell you this one I wrote because of the cuckoos. Uh -huh. Because I heard a piece of music in my head and I was like, I need something with cuckoos. <laughs> and uh, at that time I was living in San Francisco and one of my friends, he actually lived really close to me from the choir I sang with, which was the International Orange Chorale of San Francisco. Amazing group, look them up, it's iocf.org, iocsf, sorry, iocsf.org. Um, he suggested this poem. Lots of educated, brilliant people in that choir, by the way. Um, and, you know, it was public domain. It was, you know, had a lot of cuckoos. And I was like, you know what, I'm going to do it. And I actually wrote this piece really fast which if you ask anybody who's commissioned me, I am not fast, <laughs> but um, yeah, this was just kind of a passion project that I just put together and it's a little messy and goofy, but I honestly think it's one of the best pieces of music I've ever written. Um, and it's actually, um, it was published by Santa Barbara and it didn't sell. So now I have the copyright again. So if anybody wants to want to perform it, it's a great piece, but you have to go through me. Um, they're not publishing my music anymore. Um, but it's a, it's kind of like a magical feel and uh, acapella. There's no Divisi. That was the other thing. My mentor in, in grad school, David Conti, was very, uh, well, I, to be shady, he was very judgmental of people that use a lot of music, <laughs> which I completely understand. He insists on his composers learning counterpoint and uh, finding more creative solutions to harmonic problems. Uh-huh. All right. Well, we are going to listen now to Oracle of Spring. Oh, my God. 
All right. So Mari, what are you working on now? What sort of projects are you involved in? Oh, okay. So that you can tell but, us about. <laughs> uh, you know, this is a big project that's going to be announced soon-ish, and it's uh, I'm not done, so I'm not ready to talk about it. After that, I will be working on a violin and viola duo that was commissioned by Byron Schenkman and friends. Hmm. Um, they're based out of Seattle, I think incredibly musicians. I think they specialize in Baroque, but they're, they're doing a lot of branching out. And they found me and I'm very grateful to be working with them. And uh, I've got some other uh, exciting gems that I don't want to announce quite yet, <laughs> but I have another piece that will be, uh, it's not commissioned by the University of uh, Southern Ca South Carolina, but that's the choir that will be doing it. Um, that's not till the very, very end of the year. Okay. And then I'm writing a piece for a local group that I sing in called the Dallas Chamber Choir. And I'm at the very beginning of talks and how that's all gonna go down, but it's basically an initiative to honor uh, the trans women of color that are still here, that are not, you know, that are just human beings in the DFW area. And I want to uh, ask them about what their dreams, if they, if they could write a love letter to themselves in the future, what would that would be? Or if they wanted to write a letter to their past selves, what would that be? Yeah. I just want, I just want uh, people in this locality to know that these are Texans and they are human beings among us. And I want to humanize them because usually when we hear trans women of color in the news, it's about their murder. Mm -hmm. And um, there's more to these people than how cowards took their lives. Sure. So if my listeners wanna learn more about you and your music, where, where should they go? Where's your website? My website is marivalverde.com, so M-A-R-I-V-A-L-V-E-R-D-E.com. Um, yeah, my name right. is printed Mari Isabel, but that's my website, and um, they can find all the other social media through there. And uh, so you're on like Twitter and Facebook and all that sort of fun stuff? I am, and all of the little handles are different because <laughs> my name is not, I guess, it's not uh, it's unique enough. I should have come up with something else, but <laughs> yeah, I chose my name. You get to do that when you're trans. There you go. Hey, listeners. Yeah, I'm talking to you. Did you know that Movable Dough now has merch available? We sure do. You can now get the Movable Dough logo on a mug, a t-shirt, hoodies, phone cases, face masks, and much, much more. This is still relatively new, so I'm still getting things set up, but you can find out more at my site, sdcompose.com slash movable dough, and more new designs will be coming soon, so keep an eye out for that. All right, well, Mari, thank you for joining me today. It has been a great pleasure to have you on Movable Dough. Thank you. My guest today was composer Mari Isabel Valverde. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to your favorite podcast provider. To hear previous episodes, visit sdcompose.com slash movable dough. 
If you'd like to continue this conversation or share your favorite music by Mari, join us on our Facebook group, Movable Dough Listeners, and follow us on Instagram at Movable Dough Podcast. If you have a recommendation for a future guest, please email me at movabledough at gmail.com. This is Steve Danielson. Keep the music moving.